welcome to episode 38 of On Air, the Ohio Hockey Digest podcast. The Ohio Hockey Digest is the foremost location for hockey in Ohio, covering every level played from youth and high school to juniors, college, and pro. Articles written to keep the hockey community up to date on all happenings with hockey in Ohio. My name is Tim Sullivan. I'm joined, as always, by Jason Lewandowski and producer Dan Humphrey. With On Air, we are bringing you fresh content and adding voices, names, and faces to interesting people making the Ohio hockey community better. This episode of the Ohio Hockey Digest On Air podcast is brought to you by Team Ohio. Time in the rink as a Team Ohio player is about more than competition. It's about seizing opportunities to grow as athletes, being a great teammate, and part of, a, of the community. That's why Team Ohio's premier Tier 2 hockey program welcomes youth players ages 5 to 18 years old to join the nationally lauded program. With reasonable fees, transparency, and athlete development that has prepped players for teams at all levels. Team Ohio is here to coach players for success both on and off the ice. Go to TeamOhio.com to learn more. If you tuned into last week's episode of the podcast, which I'm sure all of the nation did, you heard a lot about fantasy hockey. Some of the things you need to start a league or make the one that you are in better. Picking up some tips on players you may want to own this year. You might want to keep if you're in a keeper league. You might want to draft if you're in a draft league. And you heard a little bit about a league here in Cleveland, the BHL, that has been going on for 26 years and counting. We were super excited to have Skip on, Tyler on, and Scott Harrington join us uh, and talk about their fantasy hockey league. Yeah, I, I only dabble in it, if you will, Jay, a little bit. So it was good to listen and, and get knowledgeable of some of that stuff. Well, we pretty much usually just do something like a draft Kings, uh, <clears throat> you know, cause it's a gambling thing. And, but no, uh, I know we, we've, we were part of the BHL for, for a season or two and, and it's a good time. And, and it's, it was at the time they were running it like that. It was uh, a little too intricate for the time allotment we had, but they do a great job. And, and, you know, fantasy sports is big in, in, in the United States, I guess, and in our area. And, you know, there, there are so many intricacies to a league and starting your own and whatever. And, you know, you got a guy like Tyler who Tyler pretty much lives in a fantasy world. And, you know, I think that Skip Snow is a great guy. And I think Skip has like a dark side to him. Like I always envision Skip like in full gear, watching a game and scouting his own players. And, and then there's, do you, do, do you do you envision Skip like dressing up as the uh, the referee uh, at one oh, of the games oh, or like without, an umpire at a baseball game? Yeah, hundred percent. I could see Skip definitely going to say like uh, the United Center. Uh, wanting to you know he's a fan of the Chicago Blackhawks and maybe is it still called the United Center? I think it is. And uh, maybe maybe Skip's dressed as a referee. Maybe he's dressed as a backup goalie sitting next to the bench. I don't know. And then you got a guy like Scott Harrington who, to be honest with you, I really don't know what Scott does. Uh, for work in life. He told us, he told us, uh, yeah, what, he, I don't he, know what that means though. No, he's so vague about what he does. So again, Scott is similar to Tyler in every aspect of life is like, I, I think he bets whether the crossing guard uses uh right hand or left hand to put the stop sign up. So that's Ooh. part of the fantasy league too. I mean, you know, plus minus is, is a key stat. I don't know why Tyler doesn't like it. He was probably a dash too on a regular basis, every game. So probably why he didn't like it, but no, it was uh, cool. It was different. Tyler, it was... That's your teammate talking about you, bro. <laughs> that's uh, 
it was different. It was something that we don't normally get to talk about. We talk about real things and, and to get into the dabble into the fantasy world. It was cool because it is a big part and it, it gives you a different way and a different reason to watch hockey. Right. Well, this week uh, we're going to kind of dive into a little bit of a different aspect of hockey. And, and for our listeners out there, if you've watched any college hockey, if you've watched any world junior hockey, you're going to recognize this gentleman's voice. You might not know his name, but you're guaranteed, guarantee you're going to recognize his voice. Uh, this is a big show for us this week. Uh, this is some guy that, that we watch all the time because we're big college hockey fans, world junior fans. Uh, if you've watched it, uh, you'll recognize his voice. Like I said, this week's guest is Dave Starman. Dave Starman uh, is synonymous with college and international games. His passion for the game and attention to detail comes through every time he calls a game. I can't wait to talk to Dave. Um, you know, and obviously his love for North Dakota, we'll have to talk about that, Absolutely. but, uh, I can't wait to talk to him and get his insight on one, the world juniors to the bubble during the world juniors, what college hockey looks like today, what his thoughts are on some of the colleges, not allowing players to attend the world juniors. So it's going to be a good show, uh, tonight. I look forward to talking to him. Well, as we get ready to flip an, another page in the calendar, Let's see what's going on in the Ohio Hockey Digest news. Maybe the Toledo Walleyes saw their Winterfest get canceled, but that did not stop a pair of Ohio high school hockey teams from heading outside to play Sunday morning. Rocky River defeated Perrysburg 3-2 in a game outside at Ottawa Park in Toledo. Last week, we heard about the scoring exploits of Ethan Steffel from Kent Roosevelt, who notched seven goals in a game. There was another standout performance last weekend as Gilmore Academy prep player Charlie Tuggy scored six times in the Lancers' 12-1 win over the Hussex School. Gilmore prep head coach Mike Cellino said after the game that Charlie was unreal, to say the least, and pointed out that Tanyan Bezier added three goals in the same game, so the local talent really came through for Gilmore in that contest. It's good to see Charlie and Tanyan succeeding at that prep level. Uh, you and I had the chance to to know both those guys pretty well, and, and I'm, I'm happy for them. A game in the Great Lakes Hockey League was halted with two minutes and 17 seconds left to play in overtime Friday night. Padua Franciscan and Holy Name High School were tied 3-3 and playing sudden death overtime when the doors opened at the end of the OBM Arena in Strongsville and out came the Zamboni. The game was ended so that the team that had rented the ice for a practice after the game could get their use of the ice before the 10 p.m. curfew that has been in place from Governor DeWine. The game is going into the books as a 3-3 tie. Connor Nagel from Pato High School scored all three goals, while Dom Lugo accounted for all of the scoring for the Green Wave. Jay, when we got news of that, I, I don't even know what to say. <laughs> it's, I, yeah, well, I can't and it, really it's scary. It's scary because the Great Lakes Hockey League, which we are in, is having their league tournament there, and they have games starting at 8.40 p.m. Yeah. What, what the hell are they going to do if, if it's a championship game? Hey, it's 9.58. It's still three minutes to go in the third period. It's a 2-1 game. Sorry, game over. Yeah. No, I, I – they're, <clears throat> they're, they're – uh, man, I mean, it's a twin-sheet arena. I don't understand why you couldn't move the practice to the other. Obviously, the other side was was uh, in use. Uh, I've been told the other sheet was in service as a 
Open skate. I was going to say it's <clears throat> Friday night, so yep. it's, or Saturday night. Saturday night open skate or Friday night, yeah, Saturday night. Saturday night open skate. Yeah, so Saturday night open skate, and and you had you have a, 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 a there were what two seventeen left in in the overtime. From all accounts that we've heard, is they did so much discussion on the subject that it took over five minutes. The game could have been done. There you go. There you so go. you you ride it out. I mean, <laughs> it's a game versus the practice. I'm gonna and- I'm gonna have to mute myself of what of how I feel about this because <clears throat> I would I would piss a lot of people off if I started going on this. Well, the one thing I don't understand. One of the teams involved is housed in that building. Yes. That was their home rink that did that to them. So I don't understand how you take a tenant and you short them like that. Now I get the curfew. I just, I just cannot believe And And I don't, Jay, you tell me if I'm wrong, but I I was talking to a very good source, very good source. The play was going on. It wasn't a whistle. Yeah. They whistled it because the doors opened. They whistled it because the doors opened. Yeah, the Zamboni door, not like a like an entrance gate or a player bench. It was the Zamboni door. The I mean, that's, Zamboni dude, door. that's ballsy, man. Yeah, I, that's I mean, ballsy. Um, I'm gonna tell you right now, if our if if I was if my home rink did that Monday morning, there would be a serious discussion between the rink and the administration at at the school that I was coaching at. Serious discussion. Yeah, no, hundred percent. And and the, the the my first reaction when I heard about it, when I heard about it Saturday night, was that how do you how do you do that to your tenant who runs one of the top tournaments in 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 the state at that arena? Then you also house our league tournament there and numerous other games, other things like that. How do you do that to a tenant? If if the monsters were practicing there, which they do. And I know they practice in the morning, so it's irrelevant, but just imagine they're housed in this arena and they, somebody has the ice right after them. They're going to kick them off. It's a tenant. Are they going to kick them off? Probably not because it's American hockey league and Dan Gilbert and all that. But what are we talking about here? I mean, two seventeen. let them play the two seventeen out. It's not like it's going to, not like it's going to take 20 minutes to play two minutes. Anyway, Speaking of the Cleveland Monsters, they unveiled their 2021 American Hockey League schedule last week. Cleveland will play a 28-game schedule with 14 home dates at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse. The Monsters will play their first game of the season on Friday, February 5th at Rockford and will play their home opener on Friday, February 12th when they host the Rochester Americans. The state of Ohio has given the Monsters permission to have 10% capacity at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, or just under 2,000 fans. We're looking forward to talking Monsters hockey next week with play-by-play man Tony Brown. Congratulations to Archbishop Moeller goaltender Brennan Mortenstrauss, who broke the program record for career shutouts when he backstopped the Crusaders to a big one nothing upset of number 6-ranked Talawanda. It was the 28th shutout. For Mortarstrass, that mark that mark includes JV games as well, but it's still a staggering number as he was excited to get it done in such a big game. Yeah, I mean, we started out really hot. We had played Talawanda uh, a little bit before in the season, so we kind of knew what to expect, but we came out really strong. The boys had the forecheck going super well. 
Uh, honestly, it was a solid game. I didn't have to do anything spectacular. The D zone was, was great. Really good contains, really good job by the D and the wingers to communicate and get the puck out cleanly. Morton Strauss is only a junior, giving him plenty of time to add to his record. Uh, it's pretty cool. It's just program shutouts. I want to get more varsity shutouts, of course. That'd be super cool. It's nice to know I have another year to do it, but it's also a lot of pressure. Can't slow down. You know, you got to keep keep working, keep keep grinding towards the goal you want to get. So, This episode of the Ohio Hockey Digest on-air podcast is brought to you by Team Ohio. Time in the rink as Team Ohio player is more than competition. It's about seizing opportunities to grow as athletes, being a great teammate, and part of a community. Go to TeamOhio.com to learn more. Our first guest story began on Long Island. He covers so many areas of the game from youth to college to pro, from on the ice to behind the bench to the broadcast booth as he put together what is an extensive resume in the game as a player, a coach, a scout, and of course, what we know him today as a great broadcaster. As he spent 21 days in the pod in Omaha and lived to tell about it, please welcome to the show, Dave Starman. Welcome, Dave. Oh, thank you for having me. It's always good to talk hockey, and and yes, we survived 21 days in the pod, and I'll tell you what, if they offered it to me again, I'd do it again tomorrow. <laughs> oh, that's great, and, and we're going to talk all about, uh, you know, your upbringing, your hockey, and, and obviously your broadcasting, uh, uh, what you're doing now, but let's just talk a little bit about not only the pod that you were in for 21 days, but can you talk about the pod at the World Junior Championships? Uh, I don't know, were you in that pod or no? I was not. We were for uh, not security reasons, for safety reasons and I guess protocol reasons for the first time with the tournament in North America. We were actually at NHL Studios in New Jersey, but we were in contact with the group in the pod every day. And they, you know, Nate Lehman and the group there talked to us about how really strict it was. I mean, it, they were dialed in, dialed back and and it was pretty intense and comparing it to you know, what my buddies who were in the NHL pod talked about between Edmonton and Toronto, it sounded like it was a little bit tighter than what the NHL was doing. The NHL was pretty tight. So they, I mean, they enjoyed it, but it was, it was a bit of a grind. And I will tell you, it sounded a lot different than what we were doing in Omaha. Right. Right. So it, it didn't get off to a real good start though, did it? With uh, teams coming over and having to quarantine and, and a lot of the, a lot of the countries having to uh, quarantine because of positive tests. No. No, that's correct. You know, the U.S. lost two players the day that they were leaving for Edmonton with Beecher and Bordalo, and other teams had some positive tests. The Swedes had to leave their whole coaching staff home, and Sweden and Germany couldn't play any exhibition games because of their quarantine. Everybody else could only play one. So it was – Canada had a quarantine issue too. I mean, they, they had to go in for 14 days. It was – every team had to battle it at some point. The fact that they got this thing off the ground running and completed to me was admirable. And as I said at the end of the gold medal game, and, and I really feel this way, I think that as a hockey playing community here in the United States, and especially in Canada where it's much more shut down hockey-wise than we are, we needed this. We really needed as a hockey-loving community with no other NHL games or American League games or ECHL games or no other games going on for the most part, so Team USA had the country all to itself with the hockey playing and the hockey loving public. I think we needed it to come together, to watch those seven games together, to talk about those seven games together. The social media traffic was unbelievable. And those kids 
wrote a great script for all of us to enjoy. And I think when people talk about the pandemic and how it affected hockey, the real bright spot out of it, it's probably going to be that gold medal performance. Yeah, that's that. That was great. That was really that's really great. So, tell us a little bit about your journey uh, in the game. You know, what was the hockey scene like in Long Island when you were growing up? It was, you know, I grew up in, in New York City, right next to the island, but we obviously played in the Long Island Hockey League, and it was you played for fun. I got to be honest; it's a lot different than it is now, where every parent thinks their kid is going to the <laughs> NHL, and God forbid you run a bad practice, you know, you're the worst coach in history, and <laughs> It, it's, I mean, back then we all knew that we were playing as far as we could play. And maybe some of us would go to division three and maybe there'd be one guy that would get to division one. And, but it was, I mean, we just played because we loved it. Our coaches were volunteers and you know maybe they made a little bit of money on the side, but, uh, and they weren't any kind of pedigree guys that were coaching for the most part. And where it really started to, to turn in our area, two things happened. 1980 happened. The Obviously, the United States won the gold medal at Lake Placid, which created an entirely new wave of kids who wanted to play ice hockey. And the Islanders won their first of four Stanley Cups. So between those two factors, hockey in our area exploded literally between February and March and May of 1980. And so that kind of started it. And then, you know, leagues started to grow and more players started to play and a couple more rinks got built. And a lot of those Islander greats, when you know they settled on the Long Island, they had kids, their kids played. And when they retired, they stayed involved in the game. And youth hockey began to grow. So that's kind of what youth hockey was when, when I was growing up. But my first hockey experience was on roller skates in a, in a schoolyard with two garbage cans as nets and you know taped up pillows as goal pads and a baseball glove as a catch, as a catch glove playing goal. That's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. So how did you end I up We loved every minute of it. Oh, absolutely. How did you end up attending goal at the University of Hartford? And was, was that an NCAA, pro, NCAA program at the time? I'm guessing somebody probably backed out of a commitment, so I fell into it. But <laughs> it, it, was, it was a great experience. It really was. It's always fun when you, can, when you can play at the college level. And it was the first time I'd ever played for my school. You know, in, in New York City, you had the Catholic School League, which I wasn't a part of. On Long Island, you had some high schools, but it's kind of a club sport. So for the most part, we would play travel. So I like I had never had that experience of playing for my school. I to me that was the two coolest years playing wise that I had experienced because it was really neat to be playing out there and your classmates are going to games and some of your teachers are going to games and people on campus are talking about the games. I mean that was just that was a ton of fun. I I really enjoyed that and uh, if if anybody could get the chance to play at that level, whether it be D one, D three, club, whatever. Take the opportunity. It's it's two, three, four years, however long you play, that you'll never forget. The friendships you make will stay with you forever. So let me ask you this question on on that question. Give me give me your thoughts on on NCAA, whether it's Division One, Three, ACHA. We just saw an ACHA Division One team beat an NCAA Division One team this week, uh, this past week. So, what? Give me your thoughts on on playing college hockey compared to major junior hockey? I think they're two different animals. And when you look at major junior, major junior is kids that are, for the most part, 16, 17, up to 20. College hockey, you're looking at kids that are 18. They could be playing up against kids that are 24. So I think it's a, it's a little bit different. I think the disparity between 
the youngest and the oldest kids in major junior is a little bit less than it is between the kids who are playing in the NCAA with that six year gap. That's number one. Number two, I think the NCAA game could be a little bit more savvy at times because you've got some older players and they may not be older players that are going on to NHL careers, but they're, they're older players that have had sometimes three or four more years of playing experience than the oldest kid at the junior level. So there's a little bit more sophistication in their game. They're bigger. They're probably a little stronger. They might be a little faster and they could process the times a little bit better. So I, I just think it's a different game. And from the development path, we've seen both, we've seen both paths work. And I think that it's up to the individual to make a decision, like what path works for them, depending on what their skill level is. But the beauty of the NCAA to me is the practice to game ratio of four practices to two games on the weekend and the amount of preseason practice you can get in before you actually get on the ice, the workouts with the game spaced out the way they are, you can probably get in some better lifts. Uh, there's a little bit less travel. So there's a little bit less wear and tear to, to me that you know, of a college game as, as they take their career post amateur. So, so you leave uh, university of Hartford uh, in 88 and then 10 years later, you find yourself coaching in, in the central hockey league uh, for the Macon whoopie, probably one of the best names I've ever heard in my entire life. Brings me back to uh, that TV show at a CN two and two. What was that called Jay? That was uh, uh, what the heck was it? It was Chuck Willery, Chuck Willery, the dating game, the, the dating, dating game. game. Yeah. The dating game. So, yep. Uh, the newlywed game. One of them. The yeah. newlywed game. Yeah, there you yeah, go. There you go. Dave. You're right. I'm sorry. I'm there sorry. you go. So how did you end up in coaching? 10 years after you leave uh, uh, your college years? Well, after after my, my college stuff ended, I got really, really lucky. I wound up in Baltimore, the American Hockey League, with Kenny Albert as my play-by-play guy. And Kenny and I have been friends from Long Island. And, you know, he just said to me, hey, you know, they, they, they probably could use an extra goalie down here to practice. And it'll probably be great for you. Do some games with me. He had a two-bedroom place. He moved in with me. And, and so I, I went down there and – it was awesome. You know, I got to skate with the team, you know, a good chunk and do a lot of games on the radio with Kenny. And at the time, we had an assistant coach, rookie assistant coach, whose name was Barry Trotz. And we had a defenseman who was finishing up his professional career, having just played his 800th NHL game and then got sent down to the minors in Joel Quenville. So I've got Kenny Albert as my broadcast partner. And in the video room, I've got Quenville and Trotz, who are having some incredible conversations because Joel wanted to get into coaching. And so did I. And Barry was, Barry taught me a lot about how to do video and how to pre-scout and running practice. And so, I mean, I was in a great spot. So I was there for a couple of years and I went back home to, to New York and I was coaching junior sea hockey on Long Island. And it was really, you know, I was, I was an associate head coach one year and then a head coach the next. And we went to the nationals both years, which was great. And, but I felt really lucky because I had a chance to learn under somebody for a couple of years. And, couple of really good people and at the pro level like to me the biggest mistake a lot of these young kids are making when they when they take off their skates they can't everybody's in a rush to be a head coach everybody wants to be the first guy to grab his whistle and start running practice level i'm the luckiest to spend two years under those guys learning how to coach learning the art of coaching learning what goes into it how to deal with players how to plan practice work to rest ratios small area versus big area practice planning, structure, system, the whole bit. And especially at the American League, which was a developmental level still at that time. So 
that was a big part of it. You know, I did my two years with the Junior Islanders up on Long Island, and then I ran into John Parrish Jr. at a coaching symposium, Roger Nielsen's coaching symposium, which I went to every year. And John was talking about the need for a video guy with Atlanta in the International League. And so I left the Junior Islanders, and I went down with John with Atlanta, and I was his video guy, pre-scout, uh, you know, assistant there, and and that started me. And then after that year, Atlanta moved to Pennsylvania. Atlanta moved to Quebec in the IHL, and John took over as the head coach GM of the Macon Whoopie in the Central League, and got in a secondary affiliation set up, and brought me with him to Macon where I was for three years. So that's kind of how it happened. But like I said, I, I'm the luckiest guy in the world because eight of my first ten years at the higher levels, I got to be an assistant coach. And to me, there is nothing better than being an assistant coach under a veteran coach so you can learn how to do this and you walk in that much more prepared for your own longevity and it really benefits your players if you're coming knowing what the hell you're doing. Yeah. And you, you had made mention, not to switch gears too much, but you, you made mention that a lot of the problem that young guys have today when they take their skates off is, is trying to be a head coach. Is that, I mean, you've seen so much hockey that, is that a lot of the problem that, that young players have in that they're trying to advance so quick and get to levels that they're ultimately not ready for. They're not prepared for they They don't have enough knowledge of the game, but they're trying to get there as fast as they can. Yeah. Everybody's trying to get there as fast as they can, I think. And one thing I will say is this, I do think at the youth and amateur levels, youth, junior midget, I do think we're doing a much better job of preparing our players. So I do think you can matriculate a little earlier than maybe you used to and find some success. However, we all know that the defense position and especially the goaltending position, those are late matriculation positions. Yeah. So for the majority, for 90% of young defensemen, especially the big ones who might have had a growth spurt and are still kind of learning their body, the rush to get to Division One or, or to rush to become a top four defenseman in the USHL, I mean, sometimes they could rush themselves right out of what would have been a pretty good career. They've taken some more time and gained some more experience. And when I was scouting free agency and watching a lot of these college kids, the number one thing I would always talk about is, hey, this kid could be an NHL defenseman, I believe, and he might be only be a bottom pairing guy. Right. But this guy could be an NHL defenseman, but he's going to need 150 games in the American League because he's yeah. not coming up quick. Okay. So uh, to get back to, the, I guess, our initial questions, but you did some scouting in the NHL as well. And, and which teams did you scout for? And, and what was your territory? It's funny. I started, Mark Morris was an old buddy of mine. We coached against each other when he was at, at Northwood Prep in Lake Placid. And I was coaching the New York Bobcats in the Atlantic Junior League. So he was now with Mem with, uh, with Manchester in the American League. And you know, I was doing a lot of the broadcast stuff. And I was seeing a lot of the college games and, you know, he said to me one day, can you help us out, find some college free agents? So I started doing some NCAA free agency for the Manchester Monarchs for, for him and Yubi McDonough, who was the GM there. They were the affiliate of L.A. at the time. And that turned into becoming a NCAA free agency scout with the Toronto Maple Leafs for four years under Dave Poole. And, and Dave and I had known each other when he was the head coach at Notre Dame. And it's funny, when Dave left Notre Dame, I helped get him a job at CSTV, being the analyst along with me. We were alternating games. Mm -hmm. uh, on TV. So, so Dave and I had a really good working relationship and it built up some trust between each other. And so I scouted with Toronto for four years doing the NCAA free agency stuff and a little bit of the American league. And, and a little bit after that, 
I wound up going to Montreal. Rick Dudley and I had scouted together in Toronto, and Rick was down in Montreal. So Rick kind of put my name in a Scott Bellamy's ears, and Scott brought me in for four years to do something very similar. And then after leaving Montreal, uh, Ricky Olchek, who was the assistant GM in Seattle, brought me to Seattle in their first year of existence, obviously without a team, but their first year of corporate existence. And I did a lot of NHL work for them on the pro side, uh, mostly handling the New York area teams and whatever teams I picked up on the road. So I've got a nice combination of seeing some major junior, a lot of NCAAs, been in the American League, and last year a ton of the NHL. How did you find time to sleep? <laughs> Sleep's overrated. Yeah. I don't know if anybody told you that, but oh, uh, you know, you, hear, you sleep on planes. You know, you catch a little mm-hmm. nap in the hotel, and <laughs> that's it. You sleep in the summer. That's when you sleep. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. So I thought, you, you go- I thought we golf in the summer, though, Dave. Don't we? I uh, yeah, I'm actually funny. I'm the only hockey person in the world that's not a golfer. I actually went the tennis route, but I. I get you. That's my that's my rest and relaxation. Is go out the heat, play tennis for a couple hours. Oh, too much running. Way too much running. Way too much. <laughs> and running. it's hard to drink your beer when you're when you're running around with that. <laughs> yeah, I've learned that. That's <laughs> you got to got to save that for after. Yeah. <laughs> so in in broadcasting, you cover a lot of college hockey, and this year you called games from from the pod in Omaha for the uh, National Collegiate Hockey Conference. We know there's nobody who loves watching college hockey more than you but 38 games over three weeks and you couldn't leave was, was, was that too much of a good thing? Uh, you know, that's a great question. And it hasn't actually been phrased to me in that respect. It's a, it's a good way of putting it. Was it too much of a good thing? Yes. And no, I will tell you this, the, the first three or four days we were there, everything's rosy. Everybody's got energy. Everybody's all jacked up. Everybody's raring to go brand new season. You know, lots, a lot of stuff to get into. And then we kind of got to the end of week one and everybody had what we call pod fog. And because <laughs> the games are coming so fast and furious and, you know, for the broadcast side, like we were doing games every day. It's not like you did one game and then you had a day off of practice or you did two games, you had an off day, whatever the case. I mean, like for me, I was doing two games a day for a while and, you know, and through, through 18th. And there was one night where it's a Tuesday night and by Miami is playing Minnesota Duluth. And I'm sitting in the broadcast booth with Ben Holden and we're looking at some clips to use in the open. And I said to Ben, I didn't realize that Duluth and Miami had played already. And he looked at me and he goes, you did the game. It was two days ago. <laughs> and I looked at him and I went, I said, Benny, I swear to God, I have no recollection of this game whatsoever. None. And he looked at me and he goes, Oh, you got the fog. And <laughs> So that after that, it kind of became survival, you know, survival day to day, and you learned how to really dial it back. And but it was it was a lot of hockey. I did I did twenty games in no twenty or twenty one games in sixteen nights because I had to leave early to come home and get ready for the World Juniors. So yeah, <laughs> for me it was twenty games in sixteen nights. Jeez, holy God! How Jeez. did the, how did the how did the players handle it? I think the same way we did now, you know, you know, kids, I mean, they got a ton of energy, but yeah, I think that I think the coaches did a really good job managing the work to rest ratio. I think they did a really good job of when they weren't at the rink, getting them to not think the rink, you know what I mean? Like they, they gave them other stuff to do and they gave them time away. So if you weren't in practice, if you weren't doing video, then the kids were really on their own. Some of them had finals. Some of them were doing some online stuff. 
down in the, you know, each team had a meeting room where they can go play ping pong or watch movies or play video games, or whatever floats their boat. So, and you could go out and take a walk. I mean, you couldn't really go in anywhere, but you could go out and take a walk. And the NCHC did a great job. They rented a movie theater. So each night, I think one team would get a chance to go to the movies and, you know, by themselves and everybody would distance and do their thing. And so I think they managed to keep themselves busy, but, you know, now that we're all out of the pot and talking about our, some of our experiences, I, I think that the biggest challenge was, you know, not losing your mind, not getting tired, getting proper rest, getting proper nutrition, and just keeping your energy levels up because every team went through a span where they looked like they were skating in, skating in sand. Yeah. Yeah. So this is the Ohio Hockey Digest. And so we, we, have, uh, we have to ask about Miami University. Uh, we heard from head coach Chris Bergeron right before the Red Hawks departed to the pod. And he has a very clear vision of where Miami hockey belongs on the national scene. He also knows they just aren't there right now. Um, how did the Red Hawks look in person uh, down there? Uh, what, what's your thoughts of where Coach Bergeron has them now and where their future looks? I'll tell you what, they, their goaltending is going to be fine. You know, I, I liked a lot of what I saw in Cross and, and the Pearson kid is he's something. He is fun to watch and he's really athletic and he's got ice water in his veins. So I, I think that's going to be a good thing for him. I think they're defending better. I, I, I still think even watching them post pod that they've had some lapses and a little softness in their back, you know, in, in their defensive game, not necessarily their defensemen, but in their overall defensive game, which, but it does look a lot better than last year. And I just think they're offensively challenged. And I think they know that and they'll be the first ones to admit it. And you know, they've got some good players, but I don't know if they've got enough depth where in this conference, you need to create some matchup issues for other teams to get your better players on the ice against guys that they might be able to over, you know, overwhelm for Miami. I'm not sure that their top six can get themselves in a matchups against some of these other teams where, you know, they're going to be able to find pay dirt on a, on a regular basis. But, you know, I've known Chris a long time. Chris was in Columbus, Georgia, when I was in Macon and I coached against him there. And he was in Cincinnati when I was in Atlanta. So I coached against him there and, I, this guy is an absolute dynamic warrior. I mean, he is so energized. He's got great passion. He's got a tremendous hockey head. He knows how to build a program. He knows how to step ladder his way through things. I think Miami is going to get back to where they were. But as we all know with college hockey, I mean, that could be a three, four, five-year process. Right. Right. Yeah, and one of the things that, you know, he talked about when we when we spoke to him was about you know, get it, like you said, getting back to what Miami hockey uh, used to be and what it should be. And, you know, he did mention, though, going into the pod, they were going to be playing, I, and again, forgive me, I don't have the notes in front of me, but the number one, the number three, the number four, the number six team in the nation or whatever it was, right out of the rip. You know, and he said, we're going to see what we're made of. And coming out of the pod for him, how, how do you think that's going to help Miami I mean, because, you know, if you go in there and you just get beat down for three weeks straight, that could, you know, that could take some wind out of the sails. But how do you think that's going to help Miami, knowing that they can play with some of these teams, although might not win, but they can play with them? I think I think a couple of things. I mean, I said in the pod quite often on air that no team is going to come out of the pod better for wear than Miami will, because they're going to learn some valuable lessons, especially with the schedules that they're playing and the quality of the teams that they're playing. 
the best thing that's going to happen to those for Miami is going to be the impact it has on their freshman and their sophomore classes right now, because this is an experience coming from the pot and out of it, where some of their young leaders are going to learn what it's going to take for them to succeed against elite level competition when they are juniors and seniors. So to me, coming out of the pod short term, yeah, it's going to harden them up a little bit. It's going to teach them some of the lessons about how to be dialed in for games and, and the importance of a shift by shift mentality that you, you can't take a shift off in this league, not a chance. But I do think for the younger players, especially learning the culture and the process that Burge and Reuter and, and Barry want to establish there, I think they are going to come out of this thing really well and it's going to help set them up, A, recruiting better, B, getting the better caliber of players that they want to, and C, building a real good core among those freshmen and sophomore for when they're juniors and seniors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Chris is, you know, we, we, we've <clears throat> we've had the pleasure to watch Chris from his days with Miami and, and following him along to, to Bowling Green and what he created there. And speaking of Bowling Green, we have four teams with the Ohio Hockey Digest. Uh, in our coverage area. And in addition to Miami, there is Ohio State, Bowling Green, and Mercyhurst over in Erie, Pennsylvania. Have you been able to see any of those teams play? And and if yes, what are your impressions of the programs overall? I haven't seen Bowling Green this year, but I have seen a ton of Bowling Green in the last few years chasing around some of their free agents and, and getting a good vibe on some of their, their drafted players. Uh, Bowling Green, I'll tell you what, they play as hard as any team out there. And that is, a, that to me, that is the best compliment sometimes you can get as a coach is that your team can compete against anybody. I mean, I, I watched them in the WCHA stare down the big boys, whether it be Minnesota State or Michigan Tech or Northern. I mean, they, they went right at it with the real good teams of WCHA, whether it be home or road, they competed their rear ends off. So I think the hand down from, from Chris Bergeron to the next regime has been a good one. And they have continued to maintain that competitive ability and the ability to develop pro players. So that's a feather in their cap. I saw Ohio State play a, a couple of games this year. I really like what Steve Rowland does. I, I think he's a hell of a coach. I think he's got the right idea. He's got two really good assistants. He's got an elite level mind with Steve Miller. He's got a great assistant, J.B. Bittner. He's got Dustin Carlson working with his goalies. I think that is a really good program. They know how to play the game right. They can play a lot of different ways. And – I would just, I have always joked with the Ohio State folks, I'd love to see them in a 5,000 seat building where their rabid fan base could really create a home <laughs> ice that could make a whole different level of compete in, sure. in their building, make it a harder place to play. And Mercyhurst, I haven't seen Mercyhurst play in a while, but Rick Gotkin's a Long Island guy just like I am. And he might be, not only is he a good coach, and not only has he built a really nice program there. He might be the funniest human being on the planet. I've always <laughs> said, if the coaching body needs to send somebody into a big room to get people to listen, Rick has got to be part of the warm-up group to get everybody's attention because he <laughs> is outrageously funny. Actually, I just I just watched the, the the replay of their game today against Robert Morris, and uh, you know, I mean, they and, and you know, Robert Morris has uh, Ohio uh, kids on their team, and Mercyhurst has two Cleveland kids on their team, and and. So I got to watch their game today against Robert Morris. I think they played on Saturday. It was a replay today. Um, you know, they, they look like they're playing well. And, and you know, I was doing a little research on uh, on Coach, and 33 years he's been at the helm there. 32, 32 years, I believe it is, he's been at the helm there. And that's pretty impressive. It's an amazing run. And he's a really unique guy. I mean, I, I like Rick a ton. And I'll tell you a funny story about him. He played his college hockey for E.J. McGuire. 
and the lady, Jane McGuire, who, who I think everybody in the hockey world considers a mentor to some, to some level. And there's a game they're playing and he wasn't playing a whole lot. He was kind of, as he said to me, he was kind of, I was kind of like the ninth defenseman of, of six and <laughs> they're getting run out of the building one night and he's not playing very much. And so they get in the locker room after the first period is like two on ones going all over the place. And apparently they weren't defending him very well. So EJ says, Hey guys, how do you defend a two on one? How do you defend a two on one? He goes, got you. He goes, what would you do on a two on one? And Rick says, I'd probably get up, walk down towards the end of the bench, and I get a better look at it. I mean, that's just that's Rick, and that's why I love him. And he's he's just he's a player's coach who knows how to communicate, and I think knows how to roll with the punches with today's player, and that's why his program is consistently a good one. So let me let me ask this quick question: We got four teams in the Ohio and Erie uh, region uh, in in the Ohio Hockey Digest region. And all four teams play in four different leagues. I, I mean, I we I think that's a shame. Well, I mean, what's your, what's your thoughts on that? I'm not going to lie to you. I think it stinks, too. And I'm a big believer in trying to create geographical rivalries. And, you know, I look at times where, you know, could you, could you wind up with a conference somewhere down the road where, you know, Miami and Bowling Green and Robert Morris and Mercyhurst and, and my and Miami, you know, we're all in the same group. You know, I mean, how great would that be? The three Ohio teams and Bobby Moe and and Mercyhurst. I mean, that would be a couple of Western New York teams. I mean, you you get some great natural rivalries, and then you can throw Western Michigan into that too. And yep, you know, I know each I know each conference has its own earmarking, and and there's there's like there's the theme of like-minded institutions, and there's some academic things that come into it. And, and, then, you know, certain schools will more emphasis on hockey than others. I, I get all that. But when you think about the old CCHA, I mean, what a great league for rivalries. And yeah. that's why I think the Big Ten, even though it's funny, even though a lot of those schools aren't necessarily natural rivalries with each other, the, the fact that you've got Michigan State, Notre Dame, Michigan, and Ohio State back together again yeah. is a huge deal. The only thing missing from that is Miami, right, when you think about that, that and Western, when you think about that old loop. And like, be, that's why Hockey East is such a unique league. I mean, all those teams, for the most part, are all natural rivals. I mean, they're the, it's that whole New England group. They're all there. They've all been playing against each other forever. They were relatively unaffected by a lot of the conference shakeups. And I think that's a great thing. And if you ask North Dakota's fan base, they will tell you in a, in a millisecond, they want Minnesota back because yeah. they want to play games against Minnesota that count in the standings. I knew you couldn't get through this interview without mentioning North Dakota. I knew it. <laughs> I, I, I was actually going to say the first time I saw you call a game on TV is obviously in our area. We're in Cleveland, Ohio, and 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 we don't have a whole lot of of college hockey broadcasts until cable, basically, or the the the, the satellites and whatnot expanded. I saw you call numerous North Dakota games. What is your affiliation with North Dakota, and how did you become basically a, a legend in Grand Forks? Legend might be strong, <laughs> but uh, I, I'll tell you what, I give that fan base so much credit. I mean, they are the most passionate fan base in college hockey. The Gophers have a great fan base, and Minnesota Duluth has a great fan base. There are many of them. You know, the Eastern schools, BU's got a rabid fan base, BC. I mean, there's a lot of them. Uh, Cornell, there's, a, there's another real good one. But North Dakota's different. They cover about eight or nine states, two or three provinces. Their home games are... 
a social and a celebration rolled into one. The building's unbelievable. Their history is incredible. And, but they're tough. And, you know, I would say I had a little bit of it in with that fan base early on because I did a lot of games early. So at the very least, they, they knew me and, and I had respect for their program, which I think that's where a lot of guys get tripped up. They walk in there and kind of maybe without the respect for the history of the programs that they're doing, they're just going in there for 60 minutes to do a game. Yep. I'm a history guy. So I love the history of these programs. And I love getting immersed in it. And I think that fan base appreciated that. And then when we became CBS sports network and the NCHC on CBS package started, you know, we were going to have a lot of North Dakota and, you know, we just, we knew as a group that it'd be, it's really important that this fan base understands that we're not out to, tell them about their team and we're not out there to teach them the game that we're out there to try to give them a really good broadcast featuring their team and try to introduce them to some of the nuances of some of the players on their team that maybe they don't know. And I think by coming in there with the humility that we did, we managed to get that fan base to understand that we're with them and not above them. And that's where it's worked. And I, I love, I mean, Hey, listen, we take our lumps with them too. And, they're brutally honest. If we stink, they let us know it. And I respect that. And I have no problem hearing it. But I think that's a fan base that respects us because we respect them and their program. Well, I could tell you, you made me a fan of North Dakota uh, just by watching the broadcast, going back to uh, Zach Parise and, and Jonathan Taves and TJ Oshie and, uh, I mean, what, Mike Commodore and a whole slew of the other ones. But you, you spoke about the history and the tradition in North Dakota. How did you feel when they had to uh, go away from their traditional logo? Oh God, that, that might've been the funniest thing that <clears throat> that coincided with the West regional in 2012, which was the first thing I'd ever done for ESPN on air. So I had done a lot of games of North Dakota that season. I knew the story. I knew what was going on. I knew the backstory. Dave Haxtell filled me in on everything. He always kept me in the loop and he was very gracious sharing information. Not a lot of which I've ever discussed. And so we get to the West regional and the NCAA said at that point, North Dakota is now North Dakota. They are no longer the fighting Sioux. you got to refer to them as North Dakota. You can't use the logo on TV. You get nothing. So I'm doing the West Regional with Clay Matnick, who grew up in the old WCHA. It took Clay about three seconds to say fighting Sioux on the broadcast <laughs> after ESP, after 97 conference calls of please don't do it. And as soon as he did it, he tapped me on the shoulder like he knew he screwed it up. And we had a great laugh about it during commercial. He goes, I can't believe it took me that long. And I already screwed this whole thing up, but it was, it was bizarre. I mean, I, I thought their uniforms were classic. I mean, I just thought that yeah. was a really classic look, but you know, I, whatever the politics were and whatever happened, happened. I yeah. think they've handled it extremely well. I, I really do. I mean, you're never going to take all the logos out of the building. I mean, all 6,500 of them are <laughs> carved in marble and stained glass and that kind of thing. So they're not going anywhere. And you know, the fan base, I mean, they get it. But I'll tell you what, you go to those games, you do not see many fighting Hawks jerseys in the stands. Oh, well, yeah. I can tell you, I, I've been looking online for a, a black hooded sweatshirt that just said Sue on it with the logo on it. And I'm telling you what, the last one I saw was about 900 some dollars. It's yeah, worth that sounds it. about right. <laughs> it's about yeah. worth it. But we, so, we have so, a- so, hey, Dave, so next time you're in North Dakota calling a game and you come across the actual Sue sweatshirts, uh, we'll take one large, one extra large. Yes. That's a deal. You got it. <laughs> yeah, we'll, 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 we'll pay good dollar for it too. Hey, we have a and local, no worries, I gotcha. we, you, from, from covering so much North Dakota, we have a local kid from Lakewood, Ohio, Adam Scheel, who's a goaltender there in North Dakota. How's his game uh, been going for him this year? 
I'll tell you what, Brad Berry told us a great story last week. He said that the year before, you know, Shiel had a great start. He's a great kid, by the way. He had a great yep. start, and then he faltered a bit, and then by the end of the year, he kind of got the net back. And this year, Brad told us you know, there was always a group of three or four guys that were at the rink at 7 a.m., making their omelets in the kitchen and, you know, having their breakfast before they did their class schedule or their workouts or whatever. And this year, uh, Sanderson and Clevin have become part of that group early, replacing a couple of guys like Cole Smith that, that have left. You know, Mark Sanderson's part of that group and Gavin Hain. He said Adam Scheele is now part of that group that is one of the first ones in there. And it really impressed Brad about Scheele's dial into being really serious and investing in his career and living more of a pro lifestyle and doing everything right and being a details guy and checking all the boxes. And I've seen a difference in his play. I think he looks more comfortable in the net. I think he looks a little bit more detailed in the net. I think his glove positioning has gotten better. I think he's got a better ability to keep rebounds in front of him. I don't think he is in desperation mode as much as he was at times last year. And then Brad said the funniest thing. He goes, he's a Cleveland Browns fan. This is the first year in a long time he's gotten to puff out his feathers a little bit with the Browns doing well. And I really think that it's, I really think it's helped his game because the better they played, the better he played. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, I, I tell you what, you never want to be a Browns fan uh, when you're out of state and talk to people because you're like, oh man, I love my Browns. They look at you like, are you crazy, dude? <laughs> you're glutton right, for listen, punishment. I grew, I grew up a Jet fan. I get it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, he uh, Adam had a good summer. Uh, we know the the guy that he trains with. Uh, here in Cleveland, and and he uh, he definitely put the work in. That's for sure with the guys he was going up against all summer. And, and that's the name of today's game. I mean, I, I know that in USA Hockey, we talk about you've got to do other things other than play hockey 12 months a year. But at this age, you're now in the specialization period where it's important that you're playing a lot. It's not like you're 12 or 13 and you know, you're still starting to build that base of overall athleticism. I mean, you know, these guys, yes, it's it's great if players can get out on the tennis court or the soccer field or, or basketball or whatever, you know, surf, whatever other thing that they can do to supplement their athleticism. But at this day and age with, with these athletes, it is really important that in the off season, they're using that time to make the small improvements in their game that are going to pay dividends for them during the season when they can't work on them as often. Yeah. And you, you see, you see a lot of, of like you, you mentioned uh, almost a pro style where they have to find the time to get away to recharge themselves, to unwind, if you will, but they're coming right back the next day or, 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 you know, hours later, days later, whatever it is to get back dialing in again and, and trying to find that balance. It's so hard to do. Oh, oh, no question. I mean, I really think that the ability to find rest is important, especially in young athletes, because your body's just still growing. I mean, I think that's where the, where this pandemic, this pandemic will benefit a lot of our young players in this one respect. I think with the season ending last year early and the pause that we all went through, you know what was happening? And I saw it my, my 15-year-old, uh, or he turned 15 during the, during the pandemic, but I saw it with him. He was, getting to, he was sleeping more. He was getting a little bit more rest. He was doing much more off-ice workouts than he was doing on-ice because the rinks were closed. He was watching more film, and he was becoming more of an all-around athlete and all-around hockey player. I mean, we played a ton of tennis with him. And that really helped. They had a lot of ground balls to him. That really helped his lateral movement. And But he was getting better rested, and he mentally refreshed. So to me, I think that there's going to be this generation of players that went through this pandemic that if they did it the right way, are probably going to reap the dividends of it towards the end of this season and even into the off-season spring-summer component because they've learned 
that some of these things, getting away from the rink, are not the worst thing in the world. And their bodies, their young, developing bodies, got a chance yeah. to rest, rehabilitate, and recover. How many, yep. ti- how many times did he beat you in tennis? I'll tell you what. He, he, this kid's got some two-handed backhand. His forehand, <laughs> I joke him all the time. So that your forehand is a little average, but your two-handed backhand is really good. And he, and he joked because like he's a left-handed shot. So when he goes to his two-handed backhand, he's hitting it from a lefty perspective, uh-huh. and he could just he can crush a tennis ball. <laughs> and 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 I and I've always told him you need a you need a second sport. So if he can get his serve and his forehand together, I think we found it. Nice. Yeah. There you go. What 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 team does he play on, Dave? He is right now playing Triple uh, A here on Long Island for the Long Island Dolls and. And we've, we've had a, you know, we've had an up and down year. We've Long Island went through a stretch where a lot of the O fives went to prep school. So the O five division got a little bit diluted. So a lot of tier two O fives have come up to the tier one level. Mm-hmm. And for me as a coach, I think it's been great. Like I have really enjoyed being able to work with some kids who are just on the cusp of being tier one players and trying to make them into bona fide tier one players. I don't know. If my cohorts with some of the other tier one Oh five teams on the Island see it the same way I do, but I know our coaching staff, especially with not being able to play games in New York and, and being limited ability to play games. We've just tried to create the world's greatest hockey school. There's three of us on the ice at all times. And we've split the zone to three zones or split the ice into three zones quite a bit. We've split it into forwards and defense quite a bit. I've taken the goalies quite a bit. So we've really been able to drill down on some of the smaller things that, during the season, I think a lot of coaches in their quest to just win at all costs probably forget to do. Yeah. Right, right. So what is ahead for you, Dave Starman, in the future? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I can't even figure out what I'm going to do tonight. Uh, <laughs> but, well, hopefully you're going to get hopefully you're going to get some dinner and then go on the ice. But Yeah, you're on the ice tonight. Uh, Don't forget that. Yeah, yeah, actually, that's right. I do have practice plan. I'm way ahead of myself here, but. What's, what's next for me? I don't know. I mean, I, I love hockey ops. I really do. And I'm hoping next year I'm, I'm, I'm back at it. This is a good year to not be scouting because for many reasons. And if we get back to some kind of normalcy next year where we're doing things like we were doing, I, I would love to be back in a hockey ops position with an NHL team. I think I've got a lot to offer. And I, and I think that hockey ops is ever expanding with the way we scout, the way we use analytics. Uh, the way we look at the game, the way we do player development. I think there's, there's a lot of avenues out there. I, I still enjoy being on air, but you know, it's uh, either one would be terrific, but I, I love having a dog in the fight and whether that is in coaching, whether that is in hockey ops, whether that is in any other way, I, I do think that being in the trenches is where I belong. So whichever of the three avenues is out there for me, you know, I'll, I'll gladly take it. Well, Dave, we can't thank you enough uh, for joining us uh, today uh, and talking about uh, the college hockey, the World Juniors, your uh, journey in hockey, and, and telling us some uh, some wonderful stories. Um, keep doing what you're doing, keep and because you make hockey enjoyable for all of us that sit at home and watch it. So we thank you for that, and I speak uh, not only for myself but for many people that watch uh, hockey that that you call. So thank you for doing that, and once again, we appreciate you coming. Uh, on our podcast and and talking to us. Oh, it was my pleasure. Like I said, it's always nice to be asked. By the way, keep my buddy Nick Petragli over there with the Ohio Blue Jackets in check. I mean, Nick is (laughs) – I love the guy, and I I know he is going to do a great job with that program, and he probably is already. 
I mean, he is, he is one of my good friends in the game, but just keep your eye on Nick. Just <laughs> make sure he's doing all right over there. Well, we were, we had, we had the opportunity to have Nick on, on one of our, I forget what week that we had him on and, and uh, man, what a, what a great, great talk that was. So uh, you're right. He's a great guy and he knows the game well. And I, and for all of our AAA programs outside of the Blue Jackets, I would be a little worried knowing that he's running that program right now. Yeah, no, no question. And again, I don't know the lay of the land as well as you guys do, but wherever Nick is, it's going to be successful. I'm thrilled to death that he's in that position. It's a good challenge for him, and, and I think he's going to do really well with it. Absolutely. All right, Dave, thanks again. Uh, and uh, have a, uh, be safe. Have a, a great rest of the year. And uh, we look forward to uh, uh, hearing you call more games uh, this year and many more years on. Look forward to it, guys. Let's do it again soon. All right. Thanks, thanks. much. This episode of the Ohio Hockey Digest On Air podcast is brought to you by Team Ohio. With reasonable fees, transparency, and athlete development that has prepped players for teams at all levels, Team Ohio is here to coach players for success both on and off the ice. Go to TeamOhio.com to learn more. Well, I didn't know what to expect when we uh, were told that we had Dave Starman uh, coming on our, our podcast uh, we've we've listened to him many times on TV, uh, and and the way that he calls games is a very unique way to call games. And and I I can sometimes appreciate uh, his knowledge of all the players, all the situations. Uh, but listening to him talk today about the game of hockey, his passion for the game of hockey, and I think for me, what was one of the most profound things that I heard today was that he was he 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 feels and he probably is the luckiest man in the world to be able to be an assistant coach and learn how to be a really good coach instead of jumping right in into the deep end. Well, what, what our listeners can't see is obviously we do this on a zoom call. He was driving while he was talking Yeah, or he was in his car. Anyway, I don't want to say he was driving, but he was in his, he was in his vehicle, in a vehicle. And he was talking to us the same way he calls games. He brings you into it. He makes you feel a part of it. He talks about the names and, and it wasn't a name drop. It was just, these are guys in his life and, and he made you feel like you knew them. And, and he does that in every telecast. He did that to, throughout the world juniors, which was amazing to watch and, and his passion for, for the, the U S United States hockey and, and all that. And, and, and hearing how, where he wants to go with it and, and how many, irons he has in the fire to, to bettering not only himself, but, but to better the game and to better those involved in the game. And, and I too didn't know what to expect. I mean, like you said, Tim, we, uh, we, we get to watch him quite a bit on TV and, and to have him live here and, and to share the stories that he shares. And there is something to be said about an assistant coach and wanting to learn and wanting to do it from a different perspective, because at the end of the day, it doesn't fall in your head. So there's that little bit of a, a safety net, if you will, but you have to bring to the table what you have to bring to the table to accommodate or, or, or complement the, the big picture. And the, he had, I mean, Barry Trotz and Joel Quinville were, were two guys he learned under. I mean, come on, Barry Trotz, Stanley cup winning, Barry Trotz, Stanley cup winning Joel Quinville. And he got in on, on the ground level and, and, you know, propelled his career to what it is today and, and got into broadcasting and he does a phenomenal job and, and, Hey, I don't care what you say. We're still calling it the fighting Sioux. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Jay, you said there's breaking news. Yeah, we have break, some breaking news. Uh, our own uh, friend of the pod, 
Curtis Hall. Congratulations to Curtis Hall on uh, becoming a, a, a signed member of the Boston Bruins organization. Oh, and good congratulations for to Curtis. Uh, obviously, the situation was correct and the timing was right. And he is going to be a member of the Boston Bruins organization. So hats off to, to Curtis and and uh, keep doing keep doing Cleveland proud, buddy. Uh, we got your back, as Rusty said, and uh, keep doing good things. Sky's the limit. Wow, that's a, that's really good news to hear, man. That good congratulations to him. And and uh, I, I tell you what, it, it <laughs> in in an, in a time to where we we're unfortunately hearing bad news more than good news. The good news is starting for me, the good news is starting to outweigh the bad. Yeah. And, and, you know, hopefully we've gotten over that, uh, the bell curve or whatever they call that. I forget that when I was in school, but um, hopefully we've gotten over that curve and we're starting to get more positive here. So congratulations, congratulations to Curtis. Uh, good luck to you. We, we know you're going to do wonderful things. Um, again, thank you to Dave Starman for coming on to join us on today's podcast. Uh, look forward to our future guests. Uh, and we are continuing to grow the game as best as we can. This is On Air, the Ohio Hockey Digest podcast. the next big thing in Beverly Hills.